You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McCuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast and today I am delighted to welcome back to the show Nish Kumar who has a stand-up special streaming now on Sky On Demand and Now TV for those in the UK and Ireland. I'm not entirely clear on whether that whole sentence is for those in the UK and Ireland um, but you are certainly, if you're in those places, or presumably if you have access to a VPN of any kind, you can access Nish's stand-up special streaming now on Sky On Demand and Now TV. Um, in this uh, in this episode, which is lovely, Nish came to my house and we hung out in my kitchen and uh, we reminisced about living together and uh, the phantom pooper. More on that later. Um, we do a bit of a post-mortem on the MASH report uh, and we talk about the MASH report's phenomenal rise through digital content and the role that Nish played in that. And we talk about how things, um, uh, how things ended with that show. Um, We get really into some deeply inside comedy baseball. You can't say inside comedy baseball, that completely destroys the analogy. But nonetheless, we get deeply into how to make serious things funny. Now, this episode was recorded before the Edinburgh Festival, um, so I was still grappling with the vagaries of making the climate crisis funny, or at least my dread of the climate crisis funny. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about that and about politics as well, which is much more niche stock and trade. We talk about how to babiglify a show. That sentence will be meaningless unless you've been paying close attention. Um, And we also talk about Frankensteining a show together uh, through audio recordings of whips. Fascinating stuff there. Um, Also, there's extras. We've got tons of extras for you, 25 minutes or so, all about the roller coaster journey of creating a stand-up show in the UK from the Secret Welsh Festival right through to the Marathon of the Fringe. We'll talk a little bit about Nish's therapy. I'm hesitant to use the word journey, but journey. Um, Talk a bit more about the MASH report uh, and some other bits and bobs as well. All of those extras available exclusively to members of the Insiders Club, which you too can be a member of by going to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and signing up with a minimum donation of £2 a month, blah, 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 blah. So that's that. Here comes Nish. Here he is now, in fact. Pretend that we're back in the flat in London where we last (laughs) podcasted together when you appeared on episode 101. Was that episode 101? Over 320 episodes ago. My God. It's got to be seven years, right? We were in the flat in London... Uh, I, and so I was. Well, I'm working it out on the Boutros's birthday because yeah. he's seven. So I definitely, at the point of his birth, it was maybe eight years ago. I think it was eight and a half years ago because I think wow. it would have been in late 2014 because we moved into that flat in sort of October 2014, and I That's immediately fair. went to India for a month. Yes. Like to do yes. those Melbourne gigs. And yes. so then I came back and actually moved. And then do you we had to do that. We, you had to come and all my stuff was in storage. And yes. you drove your car around. I remember. And we had to put my whole, all of my belongings in your car. I remember. And drive it around from a, a storage unit in somewhere in West London. Some of the key things I remember of that flat... Richard Herring incident notwithstanding yes, <laughs> which yeah, is nothing yeah, to do yeah. with us and of course I sourced listener questions and of course a lot of them <laughs> were like so who really did shit in Richard Herring's go I can't was it I thought we I, 
I nearly said I thought we. We didn't do anything. I want to stress that. We didn't no, do we did nothing. Someone egged him. And then someone else said who did a shit in his garden. Was that? No, someone did a shit. He, because we took, he and I, he always talks about it with me when I'm on his podcast. But he, it, I think it was at a point where, <laughs> I can't remember, they were either like trying to sell the house or something, yeah. or they were getting it ready. And then he walked out one day and there was someone had shat outside his house. Oh my God. <laughs> well, that definitely wasn't us either. We're responsible yeah. for neither eggs nor human excrement. Yeah. But, um, so that was. That was then. And the other thing I remember particularly, I remember two, two key core memories for me, other than the fantastic amount of uh, hand wash you used to get. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, uh, you shower at night and not in the morning. That's correct. Freakish, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. get the argument for it now. At the yeah, time, yeah. I think you were the first person I'd ever lived with who did that. And I was yeah. very strange. When I went round there more recently, which still would have been a very long time long ago. Long time ago, yeah. There was um, a post-it note uh, by the door telling me the stuff I had to take to BJJ. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. That, and that had not been moved in over five years or four years or whatever it was. Just awful. There's a photograph of you and your wife that is taken in that living room when we were living together in it okay. that uh, Amy, my partner, must have taken on... I don't know what. She must have had a disposable camera. Maybe she just printed out some photos, but she always says it, it's still, it's in our house, it's framed in our house, oh. and it, look, I think it, Amy always says it looks like a picture of someone you lived with at university in 2002, like, I don't know why the photo looks like, it, because I think it's just because the house, I kept the house like a student house. It like, felt it was, like a student yeah. house, and it, it marked for me, the other big, big memory of that time is leaving it, and I think I've said this on the pod before, driving away with my wife-to-be pregnant yeah. in my car with all my stuff in the back of it waving goodbye to you uh, a caster and some other young people that were there yeah, on, our, right, uh, on yeah. the steps and thinking i was like oh i'm waving goodbye to my 30s <laughs> my life in london and going off i felt like the beverly hillbillies like with my stuff strapped to go to the southwest <laughs> so that was eight and a half years ago this what's been going on <laughs> so long I thought we did do we did like an insider zoom thing during the pandemic yeah, yeah. so we yeah, had a yeah. bit of a catch up then but it's been so long like you weren't doing MASH then were you? No I wasn't do- I, I I think so I think at that point I had done Edinburgh I'd, I'd literally just come back from India I think if we if we recorded it in late 2014 which I think we did I'd just come back from doing some gigs in India and I think think I was about to go and support no in fact I definitely 100% know I was gonna I supported Milton on tour the next year in 2015 and then was gonna do did my Edinburgh show and then did a tour after that but I I I wasn't I'd done like little bits of TV maybe at that point but not a huge amount and but I was I was like gigging a lot you know like I I had a kind of like flashback to that point when I did sort of, I did a, what we call a double up, uh, where I did two gigs in one night in London, and I was exhausted. <laughs> I said to everyone I got home, I'm knackered from doing that. And then I sort of remembered that in 2014 and 15, I used to do that every night, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that was That was pretty much what the bulk of my life was, was like, Doing Flitting weekend club gigs and then gigs in running around London yeah. doing circuit gigs. You know, e- even now when I'm in like a pub in Soho, there would be this moment where I sort of sit down. I've never taken LSD and I suspect at this point I never will. When I read interviews with Paul McCartney describes an acid flashback, 
I feel that that is how I experience. When I sit in a pub in London, there'll just be a moment where I go, I did a gig here. Yes. Like I can, I can yes. feel the ghosts of a gig that I did in those. But yeah, so that's what I was doing in 2014. I was doing stand-up. I was doing going to do tour support with Milton, and I was going to do... I think we had sort of started having the like idea that I was going to do Edinburgh in 2015 in the summer and then do a tour off the back of that. And I was going to go and do New Zealand, the New Zealand Comedy Festival yeah, for the first right. time in 2015. Um to, for you to reminisce on a period of like regular two or two, sometimes maybe three gigs yeah. a night, like to us in the kind of British in a British sphere, a British comedy circuit, that feels like pounding the streets, man. Yeah, my train. Yeah, yeah. Whereas weirdly, like I know that you have worked in America, you have yeah. a relationship, you've broken some ground in America. Compared to the way people work over there, that still feels like only two gigs a night. Like oh yeah, N- New York particularly, you can just sort of run around the city doing five six gigs a night you know if i uh, if i speak to ronnie cheng it's mainly for him to abuse me and say he hopes britain collapses in an inferno uh, of its own making which um, came which, true yeah which came true <laughs> well, ronnie, ronnie cheng <laughs> bought some sort of weird cursed doll in a shop mm. in the mid 2000s and his only wish was to destroy the uk and we are living in the consequences of cheng's <laughs> gambit um but he, he 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 will often be doing five or six gigs a night and but yeah i in that period i felt like i was gigging a lot yeah. and i was having a great time you know i i was uh, until t- t- august 2013 i was still doing office jobs yeah uh, you know i still yeah, had yeah, yeah, um yeah. oh so you were in the first flash of i was in the first shit, flash of my, i don't have first another, time yeah I've i don't have time. another yeah i yeah. i remember to edinburgh 2013 to four my life still is built in Edinburgh cycles. Mm. So in Edinburgh 2013 to 14, I remember at one point I was living with Ed Gamble and Gamble was like, I can't believe it, man. We're both comedians. We live together. We don't don't have any other jobs. And all we do is do stand-up comedy. Like, this is, like, sort of as good as it gets. Um, And, yeah, so then when, when when we lived together in Shepherd's Bush for that year... I that was really I was in the first flush of the enthusiasm that I, of I don't have to you know I'd get up some mornings and go I have to go to work yeah. this is unbelievable <laughs> and you know you'd sort of run around London doing gigs and then meet somebody who was doing you know Acast has done three gigs you've managed to do three gigs none with each other mm. and then you meet and have a drink at 11 in the night and it was a you know it was a very good time uh, what would you warn young Nish about <laughs> from the perspective of someone <laughs> who has just lived through the last eight and a half years? I mean, I'd... Um, yeah, I mean, I'd sort of say maybe drink a little bit less. Maybe start exercising now mm-hmm. and not try... You'd go for a run. You'd go for the, you'd go for the odd surprisingly yeah, long-involved surpri- run. I'd go for the surprisingly long-involved run that would basically... The reason it was long and involved is I'd stop for ice cream halfway through. <laughs> I think go for the... Actually finish your run and don't stop for an ice cream and sort out your mental health. Oh, and also bet on Leicester winning the Premier League because the <laughs> odds I would have got in 2014... That's like the sports almanac in Back yes. to the Future too. yes. I mean, I don't know, as you know, I don't know anything about uh, know. football, but uh, I don't think that was a disingenuous laugh because I understood the premise. I yeah. kind of very quickly retconned what the fuck you were talking about. <laughs> oh, I guess something good happened to them. Good, OK. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, with regard to, before we move on from the mash, there's loads to talk about with the mash. Um, you, you had already been quite a provocative stand-up. Like, not a provocative in a, in a, like, you had an identity as a stand-up. You're a left-wing stand-up. Yeah. You're making fun of Tories. You're making fun of political arguments. You know, you're, you were developing at that time, and it even more so developed now, and this, the, the special is testament to that, that brilliant way that you have of being really goofy about, and we, we talked about this many years ago, yeah, but yeah. being really goofy about really heavy subjects. And that's a, we'll, we'll talk about the sort of techniques involved in that maybe in a moment. Yeah. But you were, you were kind of set up as a sort of adversarial comic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you, and that's part of why you got it. Did I ever tell you this? I auditioned for the MASH host. I Did think, you really? Yes. I think, I, it like, it came to me as if in a dream five years ago. I suddenly went, oh, God. I went, it was a shopping oh centre in Bayswater. Yes, yes that's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, they were right not to give me the gig, but I think they were seeing <laughs> lots of people. Yeah. No, and it was like, oh, I'm not. This is not my bag at all. Yeah. I just, I'd never mentioned that. It was really weird to think of like... That's so mad. But it was also, it was the sort of thing that would have seemed like a fever dream because the yeah. production company that made it initially, it then moved within a kind of umbrella company. It moved from one production company okay, to right, another. Right. But the first production company that made it, made it in a shopping centre. The offices were in a shopping centre in Bayswater. Yes. And so yes. you'd go into this, like, genuine, like, shopping centre. Oh, this is a prank. Yeah. Oh, this is a joke. shopping yeah. centre. Yeah. Sent- and then you'd get the escalator up. And it, and it's where Sunday Brunch used to be, which is you know this kind of magazine format show. But because Sunday Brunch is like one of the like that's why it was in that. That's set. why it was in that set. Right, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah. That, the, that, the Sunday Brunch is like you know it's a big like talk show in the UK, and it does shift tickets, and it was really good for PR. So you often get very incongruously famous people in there. And I've been on Sunday Brunch once with Jada Pinkett Smith, and the <laughs> thought that Jada Pinkett Smith had to see a weird shopping centre, she must have thought she'd been kidnapped. Yeah, like, right. it, it's so weird. But yeah, the offices were in that weird yes. shopping centre. So when you went for that, like, I suppose the point I'm making is, part of why you no doubt got the gig was because you had the bite and the kind of... It was a satirical show. And I'm sure the fact that you got the gig helped it become the thing that no one quite knew. Do you know what I mean? It was a new show. Yeah. And, well, yes. And, like, having the decision to go, let's go with Nish as the host, yeah. steered it in a particular direction, I'm sure. Well, so in 2015 in Edinburgh, I'd done a kind of... Like, I'd sort of... I'd always wanted to do political comedy, but I hadn't worked out how to do it. And I think in retrospect, it was because I needed to learn the mechanics of joke writing. And the way to do that is to... The way I was able to do that was just to be completely experiential and tell stories from my life and learn how to make those stories funny and learn the mechanics of how to write a joke. And then in 2000... And the big thing that happened is probably just after we recorded that podcast, I auditioned for and got the hosting job of Newsjack, which is the open yes. submission show on BBC, on a BBC yes. digital radio channel. Yes. So that means anyone could submit sketches sure. and there'd be a host. And the host every week would do a topical monologue. I totally forgot about that, of course. That, that, my my mum is always like, you never talk about Newsjack, but Newsjack is actually the reason you do all this stuff. Yes. And it's because that, it gave you authority and agency and you get to do a monologue like you're opening your late and, night show. And also it got me into the mechanics of writing jokes about the news every week. And every week you have to turn over a new monologue. And also there would be sketches and my only job as a host really broadly because I've, I act 
was and remain a terrible actor. And, like, as in I can play myself a bit. But in, in, obviously, when, you, when, when sketches come in, you have to do, like, voices and impressions, and I couldn't do any of that stuff. So my main job was to, like, you know, like, I can sell a joke. So as long as there was a line that didn't have any sort of accent on it, I could do that line in the sketch. But my main job was to introduce every sketch with a joke. And because often the sketches were about news stories, you, I was writing one-liners about the news, and I was also... And I was learning how to work with other people. One of those people was Tom Neenan, who I've been working with since I was 20. So that wasn't really a challenge. You never but... stop having to learn how to work with Tom Neenan. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's funnier if you know how incredibly sweet and nuts and easy to work with, I imagine, Tom Neenan. Yeah, and it was sort of there, and, you know, the producer Matt Strong and I worked really well together. What does that mean when a producer... What does that mean to you when a producer is really good to work with? Like, what, what is that? Uh, it's... Somebody that can give you... Somebody that can tell you something is not funny without making you feel bad about it. That's the most important thing. The most important thing that they can do is give you honest feedback that makes you want to go back and rewrite something rather than give up. Yeah, right. That's the... It is such a difficult and specific tone that a producer has to hit. But the, the tone that they have to hit is... This is not good enough, but I believe you have the ability to do better. Yes. And it's absolutely crucial. And so then, but yeah, so I was doing this show and part of the thing that I had got the show from was a stand-up routine that I wrote about Monopoly that was about like left-wing and right-wing. And it it also had a bit about left-wing and right-wing comedy. And I'd written that as stand-up and I think I'd done it on a different Radio 4 show. And that was the thing that got me the Newsjack job, basically. And so then... I, by the time I went to Edinburgh in 2015, I had written pretty much a sort of political stand-up show. It was, you know, it was sometimes like loosely political and sometimes it was like culturally political. There was a long routine about having, a, you know, what a black James Bond means, which was so... It was like a loosely yeah. political thing. Yeah. Uh, but then... And then in 2016, I went back and did a completely political show that ended with a routine about me talking about something that like being racially abused the night of the Brexit vote Mm -hmm. and so it was the whole show kind of built up to that story and so in I I had and and then I got a Radio 4 show I did two series of it that was a political comedy show that Matt and I did with Tom Neenan and and all these people that I'd worked with and Sarah Campbell all these people and so when they started talking about the BBC they'd put out this edict that they sort of did once a year for a few years where they said, we want to do a British SNL. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think anything of it because they, they, they did it every year. No, nothing ever came of it. And then after, they, they, they think they'd done it in Edinburgh 2016, maybe. And then in kind of late 2016, early 2017, I got contacted by my agent about coming into audition to host this thing. And my agent said you should go and audition for the host job and fingers crossed that will land your role as a correspondent when they inevitably find the more famous person who they... And they did want a real, like, big name. But they all said no because they all had their own shows. So (laughs) none of them wanted to do it. So in the end, we, we were in this situation where... And the producers of The Mash always maintained that they wanted me... 
But the channel wanted someone more famous. But then it got to a point where everybody decided, oh, we, there's no one else. Yeah. And so then I, my audition tape, they thought was good enough that they just were like, well, we have to just let him host the pilot because we can't find anybody else. It was a show that was sort of watched by, however, like, like maybe a million people or something, which, which is really good, you know? It was like the viewing figures were really good, but you, didn't, you certainly didn't think it was like anything that was going to... But anyway, so we did these four episodes in the summer and then we came back and did six episodes in January 2018. And that is when... That's when was it the, like a front runner for taking bits of telly and putting them on YouTube? Was it, were people already doing that? Because I, I feel like that's I mean, one of I, the first things I, I noticed where uh, well, someone went, "Oh, telly's different now. Telly generates stuff for YouTube." Certainly, people were doing it because that's how, like, like John Oliver's show had gone, yes, yeah, had, good, had yeah. suddenly gone global. Yeah, and you know, when I was watching the Daily Show, you used to have to like track down weird streams of it. Sure. You know, it was like something you had to really seek out. And but then certainly by 2017, 18, television commissioners were looking for things that would have some kind of online that would in, generate online yeah. engagement. And one of the things that the BBC wanted the show to do was, you know, generate online stuff and also engage a younger audience, which the show did. You know, we, yeah. they managed they, the production company commissioned research. Day. I don't know what, you know, algorithms they're using to generate this, but apparently our viewers were statistically much younger than most of the BBC Two shows were attracting. And certainly it created a lot of online noise. So just a couple of things from that series, the sexual harassment thing that Rachel Paris did, and then a sort of drawing of Piers Morgan and Donald Trump generated huge amounts of sort of online traffic and chaos. And do you, do you think the people responsible, either for producing that show or the people who chose which clips to use, I don't know whether the producers of the MASH report were going, that's the clip, let's use that, or whether it's like a third party, I don't know about that. But, like, one of the things I think is, like, I, I feel like I've noticed this quite late, and I feel like I'm an idiot for not noticing it sooner. All of my clips online that have done really good numbers, all my Instagram clips and stuff, are where people, not all of them, but a lot of them are where people have argued so that right, in right. engagement, you know, it go, oh, yeah. people are talking about this. And when do people talk about stuff? When they want to correct someone, when they want to disagree yeah, them. Yeah. So I wonder whether you felt there was a sort of guiding hand that was in the BBC, maybe, that was going, oh, that one has gone down really well online and we've got loads of engagement and suddenly all these young people are watching the BBC. Would anyone like to, like, I'm just wondering about the kind of the 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 dynamic, the sort of the loop of... We say something that pisses people off, you know, twats, yeah, but yeah. they get pissed off and they engage with yeah, it yeah, and it yeah. rockets up. And then does someone along the way go, oh, it'd be good to lean into that because we'd get more of it. And, and if Nish ends up getting death threats, well. No, because I, I can see how externally it would seem like that. But, but having been inside that, I can tell you there was not enough. There was no planning because there just isn't enough time. Because when you do like a week to week topic, we would do six weeks. I mean, bear in mind, you know, some of the American shows are on four days a week, yeah, yeah. 40 weeks a year. You know, I have no idea how they do that. I guess the, the reality is the money is different. So the volumes of staff are bigger. So you have bigger teams working on it. But the amount of people that were working on the mass report by the end of every series, everyone would genuinely look like if you just saw us in the street, you'd be like, oh, why was that marathon runner wearing a full suit? Someone put a foil blanket over them because we'd all just be like, just like red in the face and wide eyed because we were so knackered from it. And so there wasn't really any time to think what is going to generate like 
clicks not or amongst hits. you writing it but i just wonder whether there's a shadowy department in the bbc thinking or someone someone no, at we, some level had gone this is we we well no because we actually got the we had the right to pick the clips and actually the oh, producers see, okay. the producers of the show picked what went online and actually yeah. amazingly they they picked they wanted the sexual harassment clip to go up and someone in the like online department was like people don't watch clips that are over 2 minutes no one watches clips over 2 minutes and we were all like that's bollocks man yeah. someone just what we all just watched John Oliver do a 25 minute lecture yeah. about some obscure piece of you know some states rights dispute in America like it's you know it, it's such a false economy that the idea that people don't watch longer clips so the producers of the match had to fight to get that clip put up in its entirety. Okay. Someone actually did an edit of it from the online department that made it look like we were pro-sexual harassment. Like, it was unbelievable. It was absolutely incredible. And <laughs> later on, we, later on, we tried to contact the same person, uh, like, six months later when we were doing another series of the match. And that person was not present because they were away collecting an award for the sexual harassment clip. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they tried to fill it. Good and, Lord. So no, we yeah we the, the production team really pushed to have that clip online, and it you know that those couple of clips are what sort of put the show on the map. And and did you did you have a sense while that was going on? Is there was there from the outside? It looks like there must have been a bit of a build up, a bit of burgeoning awareness that oh wow, it's not just the Daily Mail; it's thousands of people on YouTube comments and whatever like this. It's kind of gathering momentum in a way that bodes well for all of your artistic futures, but also comes at a price. Yeah, I don't think I had spotted that because I'm not, I don't think I would have been <laughs> as terribly worried about everything going wrong as yeah, I am. <laughs> well, no, and also just like, I think, you know, when you're doing those things, the turnover is so quick, you, there's no time to really reflect on anything as it's happening because. Honestly, in, all you think about is what are we going to do next week? <laughs> Literally all you think about with those shows. So you're kind of aware of like, oh my God, you know, like the Daily Mail is like writing articles about us and the Telegraph is writing articles about us. And also Madonna is sharing clips from the show. And, you know, Sarah Silverman and Paul Feig are talking about, you know, it, it, which obviously to British people because of our constant sense of cultural inferiority to America <laughs> made us feel very wonderful about ourselves. But it's... You're, none of that really filters through as it's happening because as it's happening all you're thinking is we have to do another show and what, what are we going to put in the show so tell me about that tell me about because I imagine it I sort of visualise it like South Park yeah. like well another one coming up yeah. bang three days to air or whatever yeah, it is yeah. you know what are what what did you divine as a team were the most successful strategies for getting stuff in when you get to right bang we've done one zero we've got nothing or or is it like are you ever at zero? Do you think, oh, we'll have six ideas, we'll put two of them three weeks from now and we'll we, say so that there, one's there were lots something. of elements of the show that we would, you try and plan in advance. Like you try and sort of, like the sexual harassment clip, we, we met in the kind of week before the production and we sort of, Rachel came in and we talked through like an idea with some of the writers about what we could do. And, you know, the, so there were some elements of the show that we could you know, that we could plan in advance. But the two, I would do a bit at the top of the show in front of a screen that we would call a mini-log, and then I would do a monologue later on in the show sat at the desk about a subject. And because those required quite minimal production, mm -hmm. those were the bits that we were like, that has to be up to the minute. That, cause, because it's just me talking, 
we have to leave that as late as possible to make okay. it as topical as possible. Okay. So what we would do is work on the like we would pick like a subject from the week's news and then we would go okay that's going to be our monologue and then we would leave the monologue until very very late you know and there were times on that show where Tom Neenan was the kind of co-head writer and he would be in the stu- he would be on the studio floor just rewriting stuff and there was just there were points in the show where I would just say you know like by the time I'd been working with Tom and Sarah for like the more I work with all of that group of people, the it, more that they were literally just able to write things in my voice without me ever having to check them. And so there would just be a point sometimes in the recording where I just say to Tom, "Just put it in the auto cue. Just put it in the auto cue, <laughs> and I will, and I'll just, and I'll, and I'll go for it." And you know, it would it, it, we would try and keep that as late as possible because it was the easiest bit of the show to rewrite and rework, um, and you know, like. It was it was fun. Like, the actual process of doing the show was fun. Like I had a good time with it. Because people often say, is it stressful? And you're like, at the end of the day, you're making a comedy show. Yeah. You know, and especially when you're making a comedy show about the news, you should constantly, because you are reviewing, to some extent, serious things that are happening, mm. you should constantly live with a sense of perspective about what you're doing. Yes. Because you're looking at things that are seriously happening and some people that are doing amazing things to avert those potentially terrible things happening. And so you should have a real healthy sense of respect for the people that are doing that. And you, then you realise, well, and all we're doing is just tagging a joke on the end of a news story. So this show I'm doing at the moment, spoilers, my Edinburgh show, it's a climate comedy show. And I've noticed, I've found myself writing sort of two distinct types of jokes or bits or whatever. There are some where it's... Fact about the climate, joke on the end. Yeah. And there are bits, you know, here's a thing I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. horrified by, I want to express, and here's a joke on the end, yeah. such that I get away with mentioning it. Yeah, yeah. And there are other bits which are like, oh, this section is about that. It's like yeah, climateness yeah. or dread or whatever the thing is, runs through it. It's, yeah. it's kind of, it's made of that and it's funny. Yeah. Did you, do you have similar ways of kind of, slicing the different types of jokes you would come up with is that was one preferable or was there always a mix or that kind of no it was it was always a mix because you're do, you're trying to do you what you're trying to do is advance like the argument that you're trying to make and then that has to culminate in a kind of comedic out because it's a comedy show you can't just go and in the end of the day the news is bad and now to commercial like you can't obviously it's the bbc as well it would have been nonsense <laughs> but so the first thing you think of is what is the big comedy out of this what's the ending going to be so once you've got the structure you go and what is the joke that we leave the audience on you go okay once you've got that then you go through and just start going um line by line how can we put a joke into here and you uh, at that point will consider any type of joke you will consider anything you you know and also because we would use photoshops and stuff you would think oh if we can think of like an image-based thing that gives a kind of tone, tonal shifts. And if we could, like, make a sort of, um, like, if we could make anything very quickly, how would, how would that work? You know, we once, um can't remember, we managed, we did something, I, can't, I honestly can't remember the full details of this, but somehow we managed to, like, edit a thing with David Attenborough. We, we tried to get someone to do it. Someone did an impression of David Attenborough, talking about immigration to make people feel okay about it. I, I think that is the root of it. I genuinely can't remember. But we would, you would think about what is a kind of big comedy out for this. So you've got your 
these are your points that you're trying to make. This is the flow of your argument. The next stage you think is what is the big joke that's going to land this? And then you, and then from there you get into, and you know, like everybody was very good at going, we need to just stay on this because the actual joke writing, the kind of what is the fun, that's the fun bit of the writing process. The bit that was hard was what is the argument and what is the big comedy ending of this set piece? Um, and that was always how we worked the monologues. The uh, the shorter order topical things that we would put in around the show and the bit at the very top of the show that would often be the most topical, that was stuff where we would, you know, you're just looking for a one-liner of it. And But I didn't, I don't really, I never really grew up with the tradition of the perspectiveless monologue. Um, I always think about, um, there's an episode of The Simpsons where the DJ robots have a thing and the guy, they press a button and the the automated DJ voice says, those guys in Congress did it again. How do they do it? They're so crazy. And one of the DJs goes, how does he know? And <laughs> I was never really interested in, I, di- I didn't really, like, I nothing appealed to me about the tradition of just doing, you know, like one-liners that were just like, well, the news is crazy. It was always, you know... It has to. It, 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 there has to be some point of view to this. Otherwise, why would you watch this show? You can get just one-liners about the news on Twitter or anywhere. It, it, there has to be like a p- perspective, and that was what I always drove home. I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't really have to drive it home because that was the like common thread to everyone who works on the show. It was like, can we get some like one-liners? And also with the nature of that show, I think the show was a kind of people thought of it as a kind of daily show clone, which we even sort of thought of it as a kind of a daily show clone, but it was sort of half the daily show and half SNL. I liked the process of making the show. I love all those people. So I loved spending time with them. And so it wasn't, it, it was tiring because, you know, it's a, the money just isn't there, you know, in British television to make that kind of show. So everybody's kind of doing one and a half jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was tiring. But the actual process of making it, I enjoyed. And so I kind of dealt with it because I liked being around all those people. I don't think that I would have been able to do the show with a different group of people. I know how it all came to an end and the yeah. journey through that. And I noticed um, you sent me, you kindly sent me some audio of some preview material. And when I finished listening to it, there's a little bit before the recording cuts off where you go backstage and someone says, oh, Nish, love the stuff. Hey, tell me, what happened to the MASH report? And I thought, <laughs> you must get that all the time. I thought I, I, I heard that. the question yeah. and I turned it off because I thought, oh, this bit, Nish doesn't know he sent me. But, <laughs> but I did think you must get that all the time because the MASH report was so big. Like, and... In a weird way, like I think of stuff from my childhood, I think of someone like Mark Thomas in the Mark Thomas comedy product and yeah. the effect that had on my politicisation as a teenager, as a comic, and sort of thinking, yeah, it's one of the reasons I can never vote Tory in a million years. Yeah. It's just not on my radar to do so, in part because of some of the cultural yeah, the, the yeah. impact of things like Mark Thomas. And I think Mash Report is probably that thing for a whole generation of people. Not my generation, I'm too old. Yeah. But, you know, there will, be, there will be people asking you about the match report for the rest of your life, I would think. Yeah. I don't think I... I think, yeah. I think it's... I don't think I have a perspective on... I think I spent so much time thinking about people hating the show. I don't think it's really... I've really registered that people liked it. Yeah, that's so sad. Which is people weird. Love it. Which is weird. We were just... 
laughing our asses off. Like, yeah. the whole, like, and, you know, people just pitching, like, like, st- like awful, unacceptable jokes. <laughs> like, the, like or the stuff that was being said in the writer's room. So my fond memories of that show, so it's not like I, do, I, I have only negative memories of the show. No. My, like, fond memories of the show are, like, y- you know, like, like losing my mind laughing at something one of them said like Rachel Paris being mean to me is like one of the things that makes me laugh most like Rachel Paris just like smiling at you and calling you a cunt is the most fun thing it's such a fun thing (laughs) to like do and like be a part of so I my fond memories of the show are really connected to the process of making it and the people that I made it with but I don't think I have a perspective that people enjoyed the show. Yeah, because no one was writing long, angry diatribes <laughs> in support of it. Yeah. No one was sending yeah. you. I imagine anything like the volume of emails. Yeah, going, yeah, yeah. Jesus fucking Christ! This is so great. This show's so great. It's really, really nailing all your topics. But yeah, but I'm going to so... come round your house and protect you. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I don't really have a perspective on it. I mean, it, I must understand that it happened because. You know, it, it it's not as quick as this, but I woke up one day and I was doing a stand-up show in a fucking theatre. Mm. So, like, people must have liked it because that wasn't happening before before the mash. Was there a moment where you first got your sales figures through from your tour producer when you went, oh, fucking hell? Yeah. Was, there, was there a moment? What was that moment? Like, the tour that I did in 2018, I did, like... So I toured in 2016 and had a lovely time and did, like, a... You know, was was sometimes selling fifty tickets. Then in like you know, in obviously in the Bristol, the city of you know left wing malcontents, selling two hundred seats. And you know, like like in London and Brighton and Manchester, you know, I would sell two hundred to between two hundred and five hundred tickets. And you'd be like, this is unbelievable. And then in that was twenty sixteen. Then in twenty eighteen, you know. We did like I did like a sort of tour of venues of that size, and they all sold out. Mm. And so, and my tour promoters were like, "And we're going to put a theatre tour in in 2019." And you know, I think probably it, the clearest indication of it was uh, what well, I did a show in 2019 in the Hackney Empire. So one of the al- I released two albums, and one of them is 2016 the end of that tour that I recorded in a theatre in London and the other one is the end of the 2019 tour in the Hackney Empire and the Hackney Empire it's like a 1,200 seats and it's the first place I ever saw live comedy I went to see the Goodness Gracious Me live show there in 1999 with my parents, brother and like my cousins and my uncle and I like you know Goodness Gracious Me was like live was like uh, you know it was like white people going to see Mumford and Sons. Like, it was like a sort of, like... It was a (laughs) community trip that everyone made. Um, It's like... It really was, like... Genuinely, you'd see, like, four generations of South Asian families in the audience. And it was the first time I ever saw live comedy. And I remember doing a show in Hackney, and my parents were there, and my brother was there. And I remember... That was when I remember thinking, oh, that's amazing that's really amazing like the this is literally where probably on some level even though I, you know i've been 13 or 14 but probably i was sort of sat in the audience at that show and some part of my brain was like you've got to do this you've got to do this with your life even though i didn't really know it at the time 
some part of my brain must have been like, you have to, this is what you have to try and do with your life. When you sold out the Hackney Empire, did you think at the time of young niches in the audience being yeah, similarly yeah. turned on? Like, did you, or like, because, because partly what you do has a kind of rallying element. And you said in that, in the, um, uh, that clip you sent me of some of the new stuff. Yeah. I don't know if it's ad lib or you've said before yeah. about there's a strong possibility now with all of your gigs it turns into a rally. <laughs> there are people really, there are people heckling you because they agree with you so hard <laughs> and they want you to know. And they're like, you've got my vote. And you're like, shut up, I'm busy doing the show. You know the, I mean? like, these are the people that Ellis James has referred to as my braying disciples. <laughs> um, though, so... There is, there's that quality to it. Uh, that Hackney Empire one, did you start to feel or do you feel a kind of responsibility? Because people are, I'm not going to use the word pilgrimage, but people are, people are, you know, their, their hopes are accreting around something. It's not simply, you know, if I go see John Mulaney, I'm go, oh, this, I'm going to go, this is, this is great. This speaks to me. Love this guy. But I'm not going to go and I want to take action as a result of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I think about that. I do definitely think, because there was a point in that show where I would, it, it, it wasn't something that I planned to do, but there was some like, there was some like fruity material in that show. I can't remember what this, there was like a couple of jokes that were like pretty, like I don't work blue a huge amount, <laughs> but uh, there was some like, you know, so there was some pretty fruity bits to that show. And what, what, what I had to do when I started touring it was engaged the child in the room. There would always be a couple of children in the room. Yeah. And I don't know whether that was a... Co- that was sort of the consequence of kids watching the Mash Report online, which is a big thing. And also I did... Is it t- your mum touring local schools to bring children in so yeah, that you I clean up so. their act? I guess so. <laughs> but also I did Taskmaster. In of that, course, in, of Back course, when of doing Taskmaster actually meant something. Sure. Well, mate, I did these uh, first two <laughs> You did ever, the original. The original you... Taskmaster, the only Taskmaster, some would say. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you did the prop. You did the proper one. <laughs> And I think Taskmaster obviously brings families to the show. Yeah, yeah. And the pro- the problem was never the kid. Because the 14-year-old... Yeah. And I, I never worried about it. Because like people sometimes say, oh, my God, there was like a 13-year-old in there. Was that distracting for you? And I was like, no, because I was the 13-year-old who went to sure. watch Goodness Gracious Me. And like, the answer is, it's distracting for you, the person yeah, it's distracting who said for so. you. Yeah, and yeah. also, it, it, yeah. So I had to develop a bit of material, basically, to make the rest of the audience OK. Especially because that year I was doing a work-in-progress show in the Monkey Barrel in Edinburgh. A perfect stand-up comedy room. And... You, but the audience can see each other. Yeah. So the audience would be looking at this kid. But I never had any worries about it. Because like, when I was 15 and 16, my uncle used to sneak me into comedy club. I say sneak. Basically, people on the door just didn't give a shit. Like, they, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember my uncle, like one, some guy saying to my uncle, like, is he 18? And my uncle going, yeah. And the guy again, yeah, whatever. Like, they were, like it was, they, were not, they were not checking. I used to go to Ivor Dembina's club in Hampstead in the Washington when I was kids comedian Ivor Dembina yeah kids comedian yeah exactly so funny but yeah I, I used to go to I don't think I've ever I play football with Ivor every week I don't think I've ever told him this oh, yeah. but he used to run that club in the Washington in Hampstead and my uncle and my cousins used to live around there and so they used to sneak me in to watch stand up comedy and I've been a little a kid in a comedy room yeah. so I never worried about the kid because I was like I know you sure. I don't but the rest of you the audience is looking at the kid and going, 
And you're like, this fucking kid knows more of what I've done than you were allowed to do. <laughs> you know? And sometimes the parents... And, like, there was a point at the start of that show where I'd come out and be like, fuck, this fucking guy, this, that, and the other. And obviously, like, swearing and all this kind of stuff. And the kid would, obviously... If a 14-year-old is sat in a room and an adult is saying cunt, it's the happiest they ever are in their lives. But the parents would often be like, oh... That we didn't sign up for this. So I had to develop a bit of material where I would try and interact with a child in the room to kind of diffuse the t- tension in it. So I was always cognizant. And like every show, there would be like a 13 or 14 year old. Every show. So this is Nish, comedian and great friend, and certainly my friend, and it's a joy to talk to him. Um, You mustn't miss his special. It's called Your Power, Your Control. Uh, It is his first stand-up special, and it's streaming now on Sky TV and Now TV. Um, It aired a few... um, few, When did did it air? Like I mean, by the time you hear this, probably about 10 days ago. Sorry, Nish. Sorry, Nish fans. This was supposed to be time to coincide with it, but... Um, because we videoed the whole of this interview in a thing which is very new for me. And uh, the role of producer Nathan is being played by producer Callum for this episode because he very uh, kindly put the has put all the video together. You can find that by following the link in the show notes. Um, so if you prefer to enjoy this episode of the podcast in video form, you can now do that. And you can see Nish and I guffawing uh, throughout one another's company. Um, more coming up soon from Nish in this episode. Uh, remember, uh, you can... Now listen... I'm going to at some point do a big... I'm just... I've tripped myself up by wondering whether I should do the big fringe debrief now. I probably should leave it a bit because as it is, I I drove home from Edinburgh yesterday. It was 330 miles and it took 10 hours. So uh, I'm not best placed to do a big roundup. I'll do either a special episode or uh, or, or do some good post-ambling sometime soon. But it's... It's something that for all the flaws in that festival, it makes me it just gives me cause to reflect on how someone in Nish's position was able to use that festival and the circuit and just leap from strength to strength. It's been a great joy being his friend and and seeing the moves he made, the decisions he made, his sort of his really I mean, I, I talk a lot on the show about kind of work ethic and Nish has loads of that. But also, I think he's just very smart about the decisions he makes and um and he gets the best out of himself he really pushes himself and um and he's really like he really has a cause and an agenda and i think that that does feel to me like it's um something that can really sustain one through some of the harder bits of of stand up comedy so more from nish uh, in just a second, um, you can find everything you need about this podcast at comedianscomedian.com, uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you wish to download the extras of this episode and, and hundreds of hours of other extras from previous episodes. And of course, you can go to stuartgoldsmith.com to, um, well, you can just sort of go and look at that. <laughs> Why don't you go and look at that? Let's get back to Nish. I do think I have a responsibility. I have a strong responsibility in that room. People have paid... 20 quid sometimes 25 quid and you have a responsibility to do a really fucking good show that's the responsibility that i always feel when you start doing when people start paying you know when you do a club night and there's four comedians on you don't feel the burden of responsibility because you go at the end of the day they're going to get someone good. Like what you will, if you go to a stand-up night and you don't like, it's very rare sure. that you could go to a stand-up comedy night and like no one on the bill sure. and there's nothing for you. The responsibility is spread across a group of comedians. I, I understand that, but again, I think you answered the question first about 
children and swearing yeah. and now about money. I mean specifically the people for whom, and in that clip of the new stuff, it, there is, you know, it's a joke, but there is a truth to it. There is a rally. People are letting off steam. We've had 13 years of the Tories and you're coming out and calling them cunts and people are going, <laughs> yes, testify. Yeah. They really care. And it, it does, it's a pressure release. And they're like, God, yeah, these are people who aren't, some of them are overtly political in their lives yeah, and yeah. some of them, you know, there, there is a whole ecosystem of politicisation there to yeah, different yeah. degrees. And I'm just interested in whether to you it's like that's, that's a byproduct of me saying what I want to say yeah. or whether you recognise that what you are saying feeds into that and has an effect on people. I think that two, both of those things are true. I think my, the, when I'm writing a show and trying to get it together... I think my responsibility is to do a great show. And the byproduct sometimes is that people come and they feel that they've had their views aired in the company of... And also, like, yeah, I, I feel that there's a responsibility to do a good show. And the byproduct sometimes is that people feel that they connected with it politically. In terms of, like, the last 13 years, and, like, especially the last few years doing shows, you know, like, and the feeling in the room sometimes of, like a valve being released. That's not something I feel responsible for. That's something I sort of feel part of. Like, I... So, pe people will come and see me do the, some of the shows where I'm, like, shouting the whole time. And they're like, do you find that tiring? And I always say, no, I don't. Because you all are as angry as I am. Mm. The audience is as angry as me. We're all furious. And I get to do the thing that we all want to do which is just scream what the fuck over and over again and so like I have felt certainly but I don't feel responsible for that I sort of feel part of that because that's partly that's not me doing that that's mm. the room all of us collectively in the room participating in it like I'm not because it's a byproduct of something that I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is just write really like the funny, like a funniest show that I can possibly write. Mm. And the byproduct is this like feeling of, uh, you know, relief. Um, but I'm, I am also relieved in that way. I'm a participant in it rather than an instigator of it in my head. Like I feel the shows are cathartic for me and I hope they're cathartic for the audience. That's really interesting. I'm specifically because I'm doing a show at the moment, which is different to any other show I've done. Yeah. Those ones were all about kind of like, I'm struggling with this here. Yeah, Come yeah. and see me struggle with this. Perhaps you are as well. Fine. Yeah. This one is so overtly, holy shit, the climate's in a really terrible state. Yeah. And if you say so, you feel like a bit of a ranting weirdo. Certainly yeah, yeah, in clubs yeah. up and down the country for the last year and yeah. a half while I've been trying to make it work to an audience that weren't expecting to hear yeah, about yeah. it. Um, I'm, I really, when I watched your special two days ago, I watched that kind of advanced copy, which looks great. Paul's set, fantastic. That image, mwah. Let me tell you something. Stuart Laws and Al Clayton are very good at their jobs. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good at their jobs. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole the, thing. The, the, the Turtle Canyon, who made all of the Acaster specials, yeah. um, they're just very good. They, they know exactly what they're doing. And, you know, you sort of like you give them kind of half an idea of like, I want to do something maybe with like the sort of British flag is something has happened to it and it's distressed. Sure. And then what comes back is the set of and the set of right. the show looks like the flag has exploded yeah. behind me. It's great. Um, and that's white mic and cable. Oh, 
Well, this easy, is easy there, eh, Chester? But also, what the funniest thing about that is, I said I can't remember what I said. It almost certainly I said this to my girlfriend because of the withering tone contained within it. I, she just said, "No one is going to notice this." But if you look at the set, obviously the set behind me that was for the uh, for the filming. We we yeah. that was built and constructed for the like for the process of filming it. Um, and Paul Bertolotti like helped put all that together, and he was my tour manager, and so in, for a couple of years, and so it was like nice to work with, great to work with him as well. And but Stu and Al like they just know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But for the tour shows, I didn't have the set. But what I do have is uh, a maroon suit, a blue shirt. Everything on the stage is red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. But the colours are either brighter or inverted in some way. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, instead of red, it's a kind of purpley maroon. Instead of the dark blue, it's a light blue. And the white, and the, that's why the that's why the mic and the stand are white, and the stool is white. So you, because this show kind of is like a, it's like a sort of, it's sort of my attempt at a kind of, it's me desperately trying to do a Mike Babiglia show, but sort of falling short because it's like a story show. But then it ends up being a thing about like nationalism and how I feel about that. And so because of that, I thought, oh, that would be a nice thing. And like, <laughs> my girlfriend was like, no one is going to notice that. But the important thing is I noticed it. Yeah. And it was for me. And that's why and that's why I did it. When you're... So, so the point I wanted to make about that, about the show and about the... Um, you're talking and, and for... Like in terms of like the finished product, like I haven't seen this, the stuff you're working up at the moment, yeah, is that's yeah. kind of been worked on at the moment, but that as a finished product, as the kind of the, the pinnacle of Nish's finished products, you are managing to talk about really serious stuff in a really goofy way that activates and inspires people. And that's what I want to do with my thing that I'm doing at the moment, more so than ever before. I feel like, oh, were, I'm so glad I saw that because now yeah. I feel like, oh, my stuff isn't goofy enough. It's, you know... Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you know who I got all that from? Go on. I got, like... I mainly got that stuff from, like, Chris Rock, because Chris Rock is a, like, squeaky-voiced man of colour who talks about the news, but has a kind of, like... is a sort of shrill, cartoonish guy. I mean, the, like, Tam... Well, I really liked Tambourine, and I really liked the way it was made, and I really liked the fact that deliberately, you know, the, he doesn't have a mic cable, and he's not wearing the suit and it's a more of a vulnerable special because it's the divorce material. And also like the stage is not really big enough for him to prowl in the way that he prowls mm-hmm. the stage. He looks like a cornered animal. Like it looks, he, it makes him look more vulnerable, but I grew up watching those nineties HBO Chris Rock specials. And you know, at the end of the day, it's a man with a squeaky voice talking about the news. <laughs> so there's, there's a huge amount of that. And then there's a massive amount of Bridget Christie. There's a huge amount, and because a bit for her uh, ha- happened when I was into a comedy career, I definitely felt like I saw Bridget. You know, there was a thing that she did in her 2014 show where she talked about uh, female genital mutilation, you know, and it does not get more serious, mm. you know, as a subject than that. But she somehow managed to do it in a way that didn't undermine the seriousness of what she was talking about. But Bridget is also a clown. She's a goofball. You know, if you talk to Bridget, she doesn't... She's, you know, she's she's fun and she's silly and she's not... She's not like... She's she's a goofball. And I... It's not earnest. No. That's the thing. And I'm finding myself 
like when it goes wrong, it's because it's become earnest. Yeah. Because I'm trying to find the lightness and the goofiness of it. I'm not watching your show thinking I'm going to be more like Nish. I'm watching it and going, he's managing to sell the thing, have fun, change people's minds or, you know, or, or celebrate people who already agree. Yeah. And I really am aspiring to that more than ever. And it's a case of how to find that, how to find the clown. So my partner, Amy, said, you know, around 2014-15, she started to say, you're starting to be a bit more like you are off stage. Like, the the closest version... Like, there was a sort of version of me that existed in in clips and on stage a little bit that was, like, this kind of serious version of me. And then there was, like, the version of me that then popped up in Taskmaster, which, as Ed Gamble is fond of saying, is the closest... That is what you are like. You're a man who, like, throws a fucking coconut and then just runs around screaming. Like, you're an idiot. It's <laughs> like, you're the biggest idiot I know. Yeah. And so, the like, for me, as a stand-up, the growth of my... The gigs just started going better when I started closing the gap between those two people. Between the, like, mass report sat in a suit version of myself and then the taskmaster version of myself for want of a better term those two when i started closing the gap and incorporating both of those people you know there's like um there's just a bit in the show where i'm just like lying on the floor and then i sort of sit up i just have this like expression on my face and i look like a cartoon frog and i sent the still of it to a friend of mine and she (laughs) she's I sent it to my friend Charlie and she's made it one of her phone background images because she's like, that's like so purely you. And so that was, that was what I was trying to do. Not trying to do consciously, but that was why I started having more fun on stage and the gig started going better because I sort of started to embrace the idea. And like, I feel like it was always something I wanted to do because of Chris Rock, and it was something that Bridget sort of gave me permission to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, like, Bridget would, Bridget has given me some, like, pretty critical direct advice in my career. You know, like, in my 2016 show, I was doing the Brexit story about two-thirds of the way in, and she we did a preview together, and she was like, why the hell are you... That's the end of the show. Mm-hmm. No one cares about anything else after you've told that story. So, and that's how she speaks to me. <laughs> so... But I, she, watching her, I think, gave me permission to kind of go, oh, I can still do serious subjects, but I can still be myself whilst talking about it. There's no point in me trying to pretend that I am Bill Hicks. You know, like, Bill, it, it makes sense for Bill Hicks or for, like, Stuart Lee to be like, I'm a serious guy, because they are serious guys. They're yeah. serious guys. And they're, you know, they, and then they kind of, the sort of clownier elements come through in different ways. But I'm like, I'm like a, you know... You know, like a sort of like my mum always says, I don't think children realize that you're an adult, they just look at you and they just think that big child has got out of hand. Like, I don't think that my your children (laughs) don't view your your children don't register me as an adult, no, they just think, Why has that big child got a beard? Yeah, sure. And so, well, that's because you walk in the door and go. But I, so I, I like to do that. And I also like to uh, talk about corporation tax. And I think the slow journey for me has been the realisation that I can do both of those things. 
So what's the relationship between the political thing, the corporation tax, the buzzkill on the WhatsApp kind of guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big China. That, that's a phrase that I use in the yeah. show. That's not Stuart just really slamming me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a phrase from the show which I'd noted down. And then you came here and mentioned you were a buzzkill about something before we set up when we were talking. It's very funny you said it yourself. You, the relationship yeah, between when, those things... During the pandemic, my agent said, I have to stop talking to you on the phone. Because she was like, it's really fucking bumming me out. Because I was calling it being like, I missed Cobra meetings. And now we're yeah. in this situation. Do we have enough, have enough PPE? Where are the contracts going? And she was like, I ha- can you, we'll do this by her email. The political buzzkill guy, yeah. the big child. Yeah. And, and I quote, there is a darkness in the corner of my being. And I worry that one day the darkness will engulf me in rage and shame. What's that triangle of those? Who are those people to one another? Some, yeah, that's. I'm all of those people. I'm a, the, I'm a big child. I'm interested in politics and the mechanics of how we're governed. And I also worry that there is a some sort of uh, darkness in the corner of my being that uh, is rattling around in my mind. For me, that I, I feel like one of my compulsions, one of the ambiguities and kind of let's not use the word void but one of the disconnects if you will between the sort of my my different senses of self is the idea that in comedy there is no overreach there's no legitimizing board there's no i mean there's there's any collection of uh awards judges somewhere but that's not legitimacy yeah 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 like there isn't a boss there isn't someone going well well done done. you did a good job you know and for me that's huge and i hadn't really realized how how huge it was that i'm you know, lacking that. Yeah. So I suppose the, the, what's the question? It's about the interplay between the low self, that's it, the, the, the low self opinion, the high self opinion, and the fact that you are sent, I mean, and in the show, a literal death threat, but yeah. more commonly Daily Mail spreads a kicking yeah, yeah. in the press, a kicking on social media. That, there are people backing up your low self-opinion yeah. and there are audiences backing up your high self-opinion yeah, yeah. and crying, laughing and telling you you're brilliant. Yeah. What an insane life to live. Like, well, How do you navigate that? How do you keep yourself well, safe within that? I think you, have to re- you sort of have to realise that neither of those two people is right. Like The people who think you're the- the idea that you're the best person in the world is not correct. The idea that you're the worst no, person in the world is not correct. No matter how many times correct. you say it. Yeah, no matter how times I say it. Yeah. 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 I'm such a great guy, yeah. <laughs> it, um, the, it, no matter how many times you say, people say either of those things to you, neither of them is correct. And yeah, like, so the show, that was the hardest bit to get right. Because the, the show, the reason that I said it was me trying to write a Mike Birbiglia show is because, it's specifically because I... I think I talked to him on his pod... When I did his podcast, I talked to him about... I was, I'm, because the premise of that is that you talk about material that you're working on. And so I talked about this thing. I was like, this bread roll happened to me. And he was like, oh, that's the whole show. He was like, I would make a whole show out of that. And when I started doing it as new... When I started putting the show together, I was like, there's a bit about the bread roll and then... And then I'll do a bunch of stand-up at the end about the new... And I was fighting what the show was needed to be. Yes. Because the truth is, people are interested in the story. And basically, the bulk of the show is set over about a week. Like, it's like, uh, the, I described the events of somebody, a charity event through a bread roll that landed near me, and then it became a news story. And then the, tw- the sort of 24 hours after that, I received some death threats, one of which I read out on stage, and that left me with you know we kind of I had to have a meeting with the police and I had to have all this kind of you know 
it was a weird and intense time. And then, and then kind of over the next year, I then real I didn't realise it was made clear to me that I had post traumatic stress disorder from the experience of all of the death threats. And so in the show, I kind of talk about the PTSD, and then I talk a little bit about what, why, you know, the kind of phase of the journey I'm on of discovering why my brain was vulnerable to PTSD. Because some people, it's like a thing that happens out of the blue. For some people, it's because it activates certain things that already existed within their patterns of thinking. So that's kind of what the show was. And then there would be some, like, stand-up after that. And at a certain point, I was like, why am I fighting the, like, babiglia of this? <laughs> and so all I did was, like, take all of that stand-up and just redistribute it across the main arc of the show. So it took all these little bits I've, of stuff. I've, I'm particularly uh, focusing on babiglia at the moment. Very excited about him coming to Edinburgh yeah. for the first time. And so I've been watching a lot of his specials, rewatching specials. And I made a note about the bread roll show, which I couldn't remember the yeah. title of, putting all the stages in the right order. Racism, self, comedy career, just want to make people happy, the charity gig, the worst five gigs. It is, it is really babigliafied. Yes. And there's even, there's a moment which is your, I know I'm in the future also, yeah. which is when you go, what good does that reaction do me? <laughs> that's so, that's so yeah. babigliafied, you've taken that yeah. and rewritten it. It's a totally different concept. Yeah, but I'm yeah, yeah. so pleased to hear you talk about his influence on the show because I'm it, like, that's pure babigs, man. <laughs> it's definitely like, it's definitely a big thing. Obviously, for British comedians as well, you're also talking about like Kitson and like the, this, not, not the story shows necessarily because they... But the stand-up shows that are stand-up shows that have a kind of central story through them and threading the story through the, um, like, over the kind of course of the show. You know, there's literally one bit in one of his old shows where he just does a whole thing about, like, how much he loves Chinese food. And then he sort of says, that's a set piece. What I've done there is a set piece. Who says Kitson can't do quality observation? No one. It's widely regarded as one of my strengths. And, like, so he basically acknowledges all of the... Because he's, because he's been doing stand-up for too long and he's bored with it, he, he feels the need to pull it apart as it's happening. Yes, so and thus inspiring multiple generations of younger, less, less informed much less talented to people. constantly point out when they're doing callbacks. Oh, listen, <laughs> it, let us all, let's all just hold our hands up and say there are a lot of comedians like Daniel who like did self-referential stuff, who birthed monsters. Yeah. Appalling monsters. Let's just say that Daniel has taken away as much from the circus as he's put in. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you have to try and take these floating bits of material, put them back into the show and work out a reason why the national anthem's at the end. Yes. And so you have to yes. then... Because the... And, and the way you're judging that on is like, it's the biggest... Laugh in the yeah, show, or I it's the so, you've yeah. got it like because you could slice that in lots of ways. Like, what's the biggest laugh? What's the yeah. narrative conclusion? What's the point where the momentum breaks? You yeah. know, there's lots of like, and you've got to decide which one that is. And yeah. I guess if you've got one which is near as damn it, all of them, you go, Well, that has to be the end. That's interesting. You would say they don't want to hear anything else after that. Yeah, they're done. You finish them off. Yeah, they're, they're done. Like, they, you can hear in the recordings, I'm trying to talk, like, you know, because. And also with this show, I never built a show like this before because I've always been a gigging comic and I've always been turning over, trying to turn over new stuff and I've always been doing it in 20-minute chunks. And you do a 10-minute chunk, a 5-minute chunk, a 20-minute chunk and you go, well, that's... I think I've probably got the end, so now I've got... And then you, little bits are falling, are falling into place. But obviously with this one, there were no gigs. Mm. So mm. I was starting this... 
I'd done two gigs where I talked about the bread, where I just described the incident of the bread roll and then pandemic. And so I didn't really have any sense of what the show was going to be. Also, so then in Edinburgh 2021, they did that very, very heavily reduced festival. Yeah. Like the, the, and the Monkey Barrel contacted me and said, they think, you know, some of the regulations are going to ease and we're going to be able to do some socially distanced gigs. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like if, you, if that's going to happen, 100%. And so they were kind of like, okay, so we'll get everything ready. And if it happens, it ha- we'll do it. So then, you know, I, I don't think I ever thought in my life circumstances would be present themselves that the at first minister of Scotland was going to dictate when my next show was going to happen. <laughs> but that was where we found ourselves in the pandemic. And so Nicholas Surgeon goes, Edinburgh can happen on these bases. And then the monkey row was like, okay, great. We're doing it. And suddenly you're then in this position where you're like, I haven't actually thought what I was going to do. <laughs> I think I thought what I was going to do with the hour. And so then I was like, okay, I think probably the bread roll stuff. And I also, you know, by that point, I'd been in therapy for a while. I had a bit of distance from it. And I felt like I think I can talk about this on stage. I think maybe it's interesting. But also there was a part of me that was like, maybe none of this is interesting anymore. I don't I don't know whether the, I feel like this was a common thing like when we all went back to gigging there was a part of us that were like does anyone care about anything anymore mm-hmm. like is it all just irrelevant because of the sort of you know this massive collective trauma that we all went through does anything feel relevant so I did do like I started the shows with like a kind of covid 15 minutes um and then but then I found Oh, like this works like the the bread roll show works and then you sort of start to kind of go you know i i everything for me is like it's all i can't I, nothing gets written down it's all these fucking voice memos on my phone my phone is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recordings of me doing gigs of wildly varying quality and you sort of have to sit there and like work out why this worked why did why did this not work but so very quickly I was like the bread roll story kind of wrote itself like just the description of those events happened very organically and then I I can't remember why I kind of had this like vague sense of a routine about national anthems so I was like I'll do that and then there was the mental health stuff. And the mental health stuff was hard to write because it was like... But I sort of knew it was going to be tough going in because James had had this experience where he talked, you know, the Cold Lasagna show where he had been talking about his mental health. He was like, people get fucking sad when you talk about yeah, it. Yeah. And so I knew that there were going to be points where people would like... And there were points where it was just like, people were just too bummed out about it. And like, people were too bummed out on my behalf about it. And, you ha- and, then, and from there... It's a balancing act of how can I talk about this and honour the like. Oh god, this is such a no, no. This is exactly this is exactly how what I want to hear because I'm making. Yeah. I have been making people sad with my climate. How stuff. can I honour the emotional truth of what I'm trying to say, but also have it be a comedy show? You know, like I. It. it, it one of my favourite pieces of comedy is in the Mark Maron comedy album, and this is the thing that gives it its name. There's a bit in it where he says something, and uh, someone in the audience goes, ah, and he says, don't go, ah, this has to be funny. And the album is called This Has To Be Funny. And I 
I think about don't go, oh, this has to be funny all the time. The cool thing about doing stand-up and like doing it for longer and longer is like you sort of, um, failure is part of the process. You, the, when you first start, because people always ask you, God, it must be terrible when it goes bad. It must be terrible when it goes badly. Like, you remember the first time you died on stage? Like, do you remember, like, the first, like, there's every comedian, if you say that to, has, like, moments. The Courtyard Theatre in Hereford, I can still feel that death. That death echoes <laughs> through my phrase? life. Life-altering. <laughs> was that, what was the phrase? What was that from? Someone described it as, like, I, I, I experienced a comedy death with life-altering <laughs> ramifications. Oh, someone will email in and tell me. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, and, like, luckily, I... The fun thing about the show is I get to set the, like... Because, like, I get to set the bread roll gig in context. Yeah. Because people were often... Because it got picked up in the news, people were fascinated by it. And you're like... Like, uh, you talk to any comedian, they have ten worse gigs than this. Uh, this is not even my worst gig. It's only my worst gig because the newspapers wrote about it. Yeah. But, like, if you've had to look and see absolute disappointment in Victoria Wood's eyes for an hour. Nothing is worse than that. <laughs> nothing is worse Can't than imagine. that. Can't imagine. <laughs> nothing is worse than that. You know, I've been like, ch- I had to be like escorted out of venues by security staff because people wanted to beat me up. You know, like... It, 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 it's so weird, isn't it, that the bread roll became the international incident. Yeah. When, like, as gigs go, you it's, know, it's fine. You know, yeah. it was a charity gig. We, I, it, it was, you know, it was funny. Like, t- Tim Key is a good person to talk to about it because he was with me the whole day. Yeah. And so he was like, you know, he was like, the mad thing about it was we were in the pub laughing about the bread roll. We thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And then he said, he said, he, I can't remember, it's, uh, there's a very intrinsically Tim Key phrase to it, but he says something like, you know, and then the Telegraph published the article and I'd say the atmosphere shifted. <laughs> <laughs> and like that the show is sort of about that like this, it's sort of about how I bear no animosity to the audience of that gig it's more the like quote unquote journalists who fucking wrote stories about it but yeah every comedian has like a, a death that resounds through and like there are so many gigs I can think of that I didn't mention in the show that I still can like bring me to a cold sweat but now when some when something fails you're like cool yeah we gotta change it like, it's part of the, like, failure is part of the process. When a tour show, not even if it doesn't go well, when it doesn't go as well as I want it to, that was one of the things that I learned from, tour, like, being Milton's tour support, is that, like, uh, you know, I'd sit backstage and every night be like, man, this guy's ripping it. And some nights he'd come off and go, wow, that was really hard. And you'd be like, eh? I'd, uh, what? But you sort of realise that, like, I sometimes it's, you know... You, you just you, you don't feel it or you feel like you just feel sad that you didn't give the audience what they wanted and that still hurts but when you're working on stuff you go okay cool that doesn't work but what I don't know is in the moment why it didn't work I have Frankenstein previews together that worked into one thing I distinctly remember in 2016 I was working on my show and then there was a point where the first 20 minutes had just stopped working and so then I was like I remember that that worked in Auckland so then I Frankensteined the Auckland bit together with one that I'd done in Kennington at James Gill's Always Be Comedy gig which is also you know which is my safe place on stage you know there's like a few 
Always Be Comedy, the Bill Murray Comedy Club, the Monkey Barrel. These are like my sort of safe, up the creek on a Sunday, these are my sort of safe places. But um, so I sort of Frankenstein those two things together, but and then also had to like cut because that was the preview that Bridget had said you got to take the middle of the show out and put it at the end because mm. so I then had to like I can't really use Garage Band but I, you sort of do the best you can and you put together some version of it and then you sort of get if you have one preview that like where you get it all together you then just hold on to that like mm-hmm. gold dust and then and I still even when the tour starts I still keep recording it that the point where I forget to put the recorder on. It's the point that I'm like, I think we've got the show. Is it ever annoying when you finish the tour and then you're whizzing the material back up again, like playing with it ready, you know, like re- revising it, I suppose, getting it ready to tape it, and you discover new jokes you could have been doing 200 dates ago? Uh, yes, <laughs> so fucking annoying. <laughs> it, it didn't really happen with this show in the same way because I did it, I was revising it a lot on through the tour, then... I rewrote it a bit to go and do in New York, LA and Montreal. Because again, you kind of go, there's lots of like sort of British, little British references that you think either I've got to drop it or I've got to explain it. And so there's lots of stuff where, you know, I sort of did stuff like that. And so, and then after I recorded the show, I then did it uh, four times in Australia. And sort of with that I was you know I was sort of trying to remember the show when I was on stage so it was the gigs were really ex- fun and exciting but there wasn't really like the opportunity to do anything new with it and I think partly probably on some subconscious level I was like don't improve this <laughs> really hurt your feelings um but the the 2019 tour like I really love the album recording is like I'm really like I'm really proud of it because it was the Hackney Empire show but fuck me that show was way better after I recorded it it was way better I rewrote it again to go and do in New York and LA and it was so much better (laughs) like it was like incomparably better as a like as a live album I th- I really am happy with the kind of finished product and it this is audio only yeah this is audio only yeah so it's on whatever the like Spotify and Apple Music and all that stuff is and you know like I released it again these things that I do purely for my own satisfaction the two albums are named the dates of them are, the track titles are all the, t- the date that they were recorded so that the second one there's two one one there's a couple of bits from the second show and those tracks are labeled as such but also the structure of the naming is taken from Kendrick Lamar's untitled unmastered mixtape like the dating and all that stuff again who who is that for who who cares i care and it's purely for my satisfaction but um you know, I did a lot of the editing of those. Like, I, I had to re-listen to them in the pandemic, and I was just like, oh, man, this show was so much better when I rewrote it. <laughs> I rewrote the whole thing. Not the whole thing. It wasn't the whole thing. It was like, there was like, I, there was probably like a couple of just like key routines 
and like some of the ending that I just got so much better after that recording. Yeah. And so there's always a part of you that thinks, oh, for Christ. So that which was good going into this process because, you know, there's a part of you that's thinking like, don't make sure that you've really written the fuck out of this thing. And, yes. and I also, like there was going to be a point where I was going to record, like try and film it. Because I, you know, we've sold it, which is very, both gratifying for me but mainly gratifying for my accountant, who was like, this is a big hole you've dug in your finances <laughs> for seemingly no return. Um, because you paid all the Yeah, because I paid for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tens yeah. of thousands, I would imagine. Yeah, because I, yeah, yeah. I also thought there's no point in doing it. It's a, it's a really hard thing, because it's like you sort of... Um, you know, there's a part of you that's like, you, you can't really say to people, like, film you're paid to film your own stuff. It costs so much money. Like, it costs so much fucking yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. for me, I'd like built this kind of. I built in my head, I was like, I'm going to film this show and I want to do it properly. So, I'm going to spend this amount of money. But luckily, we very fortunately, well, I wouldn't say fortunately, due to the diligence and hard work of my long suffering agent who has the worst job in show business, uh, we've sold it, and which is great. And, but because of, you know, because I was sort of, like, I was really like, make sure that you've written the fuck out of this thing. So at one point we were going to film it in the middle of the tour. And then I, I thought, I remember what happened with, Amer like, remember what happened with America last time. And either make sure this is perfect before you tape it or tape it and never breathe a word of it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, so with this, I let it all happen. I finished the tour. I did... New York and LA shows. I did Edinburgh, like a, like a week long run in Edinburgh. And so I really like got the show. And like, I, I, you know, at this point I have no perspective on the show because I've seen it a hundred times. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that like, I got an email from uh, Al saying, I'm not going to allow you to watch this again. Because he was like, you just keep these, you don't need to make these changes. You don't, you, yeah, you don't right. need to make these changes. Um, but it's definitely like it's a it's a representation of the material that I am pleased with, and I think you sort of it it it, it does suck when you finish the show. And so, and I did have these four Australian shows, but I think because there was such a there was a big like a month long time lag, and so like the first night in Melbourne, I was so nervous yeah. because I was like I'm not going to be able to remember. And then when I did it, it was I felt sort of very. Uh, you know, yeah. relieved about it. And I did those four shows, but I was so focused on getting them right that I think I, my head wasn't in a position that it would have thought of, like, too many new jokes because it was just, like, you execute the thing. And I did the last show in, like, one of the studio rooms of the Opera House. I have family in Sydney. I have these, like, two cousins that have no respect for me that are my sort of cousins slash godchildren. <laughs> and they were there. They never, they'd never, never seen me do stand-up before. So it was, like, it was this very, like... It's a lovely, night for me. It's yeah, a really lovely great. night for for me and my family. And like my uncle and aunt came to see the shows, and like it was a very meaningful thing for me to finish the show in that circumstance. And but in that show, I was back to being excited about it because I hadn't said it for a while. And so I think right. I wasn't in a position to make anything to improve anything at that point. But. Let me let me just. I'm just going to cut straight to these. We're going to yeah. do a couple of listener questions, but we've got to do them very quick yeah. because any minute now, my children are going to arrive home, and you're going to revert back into being a giant child. Speaking of people, <laughs> correct. It's quick, so quick, yeah. quick fire-ish answers. Yeah, yeah. 
Does he, this is Graham Rayner, does he get annoyed that he's seen by many as simply a lefty comic when actually he's so much more than that? Um, simply, I, quite a backhanded uh, yeah, question. Well, I, guess, I don't know, I mean, I guess... So like, many people the, think you are nothing but a left wing comic. The, the problem is, they are not incorrect. Fair, fair, great, so lovely. It's hard for me to take it too personally. Are there any comics out there, this is Chris Bambra, are there any comics out there whose talent and craft you admire but whose angle on the world you can't sympathise with? Um, yeah, there's like a lot of Without comedians. naming any of them, uh, is there a way to, like, I don't want to sort of put you on the spot and ask yeah. you to name any of them, but like, is there any answer to that? Yes, there are. Um, what sorts of things, like, do you find yourself thinking, fuck, they're brilliant, I wish they weren't a dick? Mm, do you mean personally a dick, or like, do you mean, the, mean the worldview that they're presenting on stage, do I find it abhorrent? Yeah, politically worldview. There yeah. are some people who's materialist there are always going to be your uh, the laughter response in your body is faster than your brain can think yeah. and so sometimes there are things that you laugh at that are absolutely appalling yes. but because the joke was so well put together you can't help but laugh and then there it's are... important at that moment not to let them hoodwink you into thinking that you tacitly accepted yeah their that's right yeah, yeah yeah but then there are also some people i think sort of increasingly as the internet has kind of ruined people's brains and like again I don't need to mention them by name. Some of them I've mentioned by name on stage before. But as the internet has ruined people's brains, it's not even just that you find that their worldview is sort of, like, abhorrent. It's starting to affect the nature of the comedy because yeah. when, this, when somebody says something that's sort of horrible but you still trust that that person is a good... Like, when you can yeah. feel that somebody is doing something as a character, when a character is saying something, we can completely engage with that. We, I, 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 I can't... I don't have any truck with the idea that people now can't watch horrible people say horrible things to each other, especially not when literally every single one of us has just watched every minute of succession. We, can, we definitely can watch and engage things that are, have people in them that are presenting things that we don't agree with. But what I... What where it falls down for me is like when people start when I feel like there, that there's a kind of cruelty behind it, yeah. Because I think the cruelty also like drags down the quality of writing sometimes. I I, I don't know why that those two things shouldn't necessarily go hand in hand. But when I think of specific case studies of the people that I'm talking about, I've seen that with a kind of growing cruelty, they've also declined as comedic craftspeople. And there's no reason why those two things should coexist. And I'm sure a clever person can explain to me why I, why I mean that. It's probably because they're like, a lot of them have been made cruel by the information that they're being exposed to on the internet. And so now what they're doing is engaging with things in a very surface level way mm. because they're getting everything via Twitter. And so their stand-up is itself becoming a series of regurgitated tweets. And so maybe that's why the quality is also declining. Uh, Thank you, Simon. Leslie, thank you, Danielle Francis. I've heard a lot of comics on the podcast say they went back on the circuit due to missing it and the social aspect. So now he's on TV and gone through the ranks as a comic. What's his favourite type of venue to play? Does he miss club comedy or prefer to to tour? You do both. I still do both. I mean, none of us were able to go into clubs for ages. And, you know, I did have a night recently when I did Always Be Comedy where especially a lot of the time you end up just when you if you live in London and gig in London a lot of the time you arrive 10 minutes before you're on you do your set and you go home 
but I went and did Always Be Comedy and I stayed and watched the whole night and yeah. a bunch of my friends were on and I, you know, afterwards remember saying to Amy, like, I really love being a stand-up comedian. Man. I really love it and I really, it, you know, there's definitely, like, a part of you, if you were like me, going to, like, comedy clubs when you were 16, you wanted to, like, be the person who was, like, on the stage and then you also wanted to follow them off stage so they could hang out with 100%. other people who were on the stage. 100%. And that, I remember having that feeling. It's funny because I just remember it very distinctly from uh, like a couple of weeks ago when I did a gig and like Kamel and Rose and, uh, you know, were on and like we, you know, we just were like, let's make a night of it and have dinner and then do the gig and then go for a drink afterwards. And I just sort of remember thinking like, oh yeah, this is what I... In the end, this is all what I've always wanted to be. On the subject of other comedians, what's your favourite time you've been thrown under the bus by Rosie Jones throwing herself on the floor? <laughs> Asks Dan Garrett. What's your favourite? I mean... Let me preface this by saying that I know how much of a dick this whole anecdote makes me sound. <laughs> I, know, I know everything about how unpleasant this whole story is. I was going to a show business Halloween party and... The, uh, at the show business Halloween party, I was going with Jason Manzukis, who is a brilliant comedic actor, a brilliant podcaster, and he and I also seem to have the same face. Like, of all of the people that people are like, you look like X, Y, and Z, they normally mean you are both Asian men. Yeah, yeah. But I cannot tell you. The, I was, you don't look unlike Jason Manzukis. I was hanging out at my, I was at my grandma's house two weeks ago, <laughs> and I put the TV on, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine was on, and my grandmother, who's admittedly eyesight is not as good as it used to be, was like, you didn't tell me you did this show. Incredible. Like, truly, she was, like, annoyed with me. She was like, you didn't tell me you were in the... She's like, I don't even know what this is. Uh, but she literally thought it was me. And so we went to a Halloween party dressed as each other. And as we walked in, Rosie Jones appeared, as she does, as if conjured by some malevolent spirit. And she was dressed as Ronald McDonald. And she walked towards us, and she I knew what she was going to do. But in the moment, she looked and realised what was going on. She realised that I was there dressed as Jason, yeah. and Jason was there dressed as me. Yeah. And she went towards him yeah. and slowly fell on the floor oh. and shouted, Nish, Nish, what oh. are you doing? Oh, and so I got to see her work that out, and, and I got to see him go, I understand what's happened here. Oh, <laughs> yes! <laughs> he was, you know, if you... You know, if you you see Ronald McDonald coming towards you and immediately throwing themselves on the floor and screaming, "What nish nish? Why did you push a disabled girl?" It show it tells you something about Jason's comedy brain, I guess, that he immediately yeah. understood the circumstances. That's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Final question: We know you. We know you're pretty happy. Yeah, we've covered that in a previous episode. Yeah, I imagine you're happier now than you were there. Yeah, yeah. Holly Whitbread asks, did you know you sound just like Chris Barry? I have had that uh, pointed out to me before. I think Chris Barry... I think she means to troll you with this. I think she's aware of that. And she's, well, here's the you thing. Don't, I mean, I'd never noticed, but when she said that, I was like, here's what oh, I would you say. do sound like Chris Barry. Here's what I would say about it. I think it's unfortunate now, because <laughs> I think Chris Barry maybe has some views that don't align necessarily with my worldview. Based Def on... Deftly put. Yeah, based on some things that I've recently read, I think it's possible that Chris Barry and I have uh, drifted apart ideologically. Beautiful. But what I would say is, if you're telling me, when I was uh, 
10 years old, I queued for two and a half hours to meet Chris Barry at the Whitgift Centre in Croydon because I was such a massive Red Dwarf fan. Huge. And I, I remember being there with my friend and I said to him, we should do the rumour salute when we get to the front because they'll think that's really funny. And then we watched two hours of people doing the rumour salute to an increasingly depressed Chris Barry. And I remember turning to my friend and going, I don't think we should do the rumour salute. And he was like... No, I didn't want to say anything, but I really don't think we should do the rumour salute. So <laughs> I guess if you're telling me I sound like Chris Barry, that's a huge compliment to the child me. The adult me now perhaps is not as happy. <laughs> uh, I had cause recently to show my son the... We've started doing little clips of things, the French taunter, yeah. little bits of bobs. Uh, we did uh, go to Blue Alert. Are you sure, sir? It will mean changing the bowl. And to see the joy on his face, I had to do a certain amount of establishing context and what have you. Yeah. And to see him get it and to go, yeah, baby. That's we've funny. We've got all of this to come. That's funny. You, could so, you sort of... Um... And I can pretend it finished after the fourth season. He need yeah. never know. <laughs> I, think it's, I think there's something really funny about, like, like identifying... My, that's probably quite a big moment in your son's life because it's really activated some, like, understanding of... You know, like, uh, there's, there's sort of, like, some kind of episodes of The Simpsons that are, like, so indelibly marked in my brain that I think they kind of kick-started, you know, like, uh, like my, a bit of my brain came online that day. Like, you know, when the, um, you know, when, like, um, Ultron is like, where am I? Well, I've just woken up. Like, there's some part of your son's brain that, like, woke up. Uh, we, and I... About a year ago, we did uh, Don't Look At Me, I'm Irrelevant, from the young ones. <laughs> yeah. And he was saying it for a week. It was just so like, there we go. We're, here we go. Here we go. We recently did, because uh, uh, Gamble uh, tweeted it, um, and it suddenly reminded me of um, Rick Mail at the Secret Policeman's Ball yeah. doing Do You Love Me? Yeah, yeah. And we watched that. There is a very fruity bit of language at the very end, which I was completely lulled into a false sense of security before. It's like, it's like all those, um, I think just, and I think rightly, we've maybe got a bit more sophisticated in terms of demarcating what is and isn't appropriate for kids. But like when you watch most comedies from the 80s yeah. now, oh, yeah. there's bits in it where you're like, whoa! A very different time. What, there's so many tits. Yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. movies that were like, like in Coming to America, yeah. you never, you, <laughs> like, I watched that when I was a little kid, and yeah. I don't remember the royal penises, Cleve. Sure, yeah, yeah. Last one, on the subject of, uh, I was going to say on the subject of Ed Gamble, but also on the subject of the royal penis. Um, was he in an Edinburgh, was Nish in an Edinburgh show, asks Matt Box, called Super Fun Time, or something like that, with Ed Gamble doing novelist character Selsden Crump? Yeah. Or am I going mad? Novelist character Selston Krupp. It was called Cool Fun. Cool and we did it. Fun. It was a free fringe show we did at the White Horse in 2008 and 9. And so I'm guessing if Ed was doing Selston Krupp, that was probably 2008. I remember Ed doing Selston Krupp. When I saw the It was a romantic novelist character that by Ed's own admission was a direct rip-off of Garth Marenghi and Anna Partridge. Yes, there we go. But, Beautiful. But if you... I think there's a clip of him doing it because he did it in the Chortle student final and as we oh, know, those clips are away. immovable. <laughs> and so he, you will see him do it and there's bits of it where he's... Some of the writing is so, so brilliant. There's a bit in it where he said... Um, where he says... Um, 
God, those eyes were nice. Like someone had taken two Caribbean rock pulls and injected them directly into her face. (laughs) There's lots of, like... um, There's lots of bits. I can still probably... That Ed Gambler, Selston Krupp, Daniel Simonson set from 2010-11, I can probably do a chunk of those verbatim. Uh, The... um, you know, like he wouldn't bring an apple to an orchard. The Augusta yeah, 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 like yeah, bits yeah. of people stand up that I saw so many times that I can. And also, like in the early years, there's bits because you did so gigs with people. Susie Ruffle hates me because I can remember her first five <laughs> gigs and I can remember material she does. And occasionally, I will bring it up to her, and she gets very angry. <laughs> We're done. The kids are home. They've snuck past beautifully. I thought they were going to run in and interrupt us, but uh, let's wrap up there. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know. I don't, I can't. I can't do a wrap up because it's you. But thanks, my friend Nish Kumar. Thank you. <laughs> so that was Nish Kumar. Thank you so much to Nish for for being on the show, for returning to the show. It's fabulous to have him back. Um, I will in a post I'll do a mini post amble on the fringe and I will just tell you some of the people that we've got coming up and some of the wonderful things I saw um, which will hopefully mean that some people from those things are coming up also but thank you Nish thank you so much thanks to you for listening remember you can see this episode um, you, you, not the extras but you can see the um, uh, the actual recording of this episode uh, follow the link in the show notes and um, well, we'll experiment with this really thank you to uh, producer Callum for uh, taking care of just literally like a hundred gigs worth of videos as I ham-fistedly work out how best to move forward um, shooting the show it's something I obviously had the idea for eight years ago hey I should be videoing these oh sounds a bit like faff I thought and now I've got an archive full of audio uh, which has less not value but less sort of functionality so um if you're a podcaster and you're thinking should i get around to videoing these i think you probably should so um thanks once again thanks nish thanks to you for listening and sharing the show uh thanks to callum thank you to Susie lewis head logger um lots of love to moz um you've been listening to the comedians comedian podcast with me Stuart goldsmith i never say that i sort of take it for granted by now um, but uh, now let's have a little a post-Edinburgh post But if you're not sticking around for that, bye for now. So this is classic me. I've decided that I wasn't going to do this and now I'll slightly do it. Only because I suddenly remembered a brilliant thing that my brother said in the first week of the festival. I said, where's my little list? I kept a little list of some of the absolutely great stuff that I saw. I saw more than the things that just appear on this list. But... Um, I saw shows by, and these are people who have either agreed to do the pod or or who I'm going to chase up. Some of the things I saw, and this is by no means comprehensive, I saw Reuben Kay. Look, I will very easily end up doing like a little short sentence about each of these unless I prevent myself from doing that with martial discipline. So let's just assume I thought all of these were brilliant. Reuben Kay, Sakiza, Nabil Abdul-Rashid, Huge Davies, Susie McCabe, Janine Haruni, Elliot Steele, Alex Keeley, Christopher Bliss, Christopher MacArthur Boyd, Dan Rath, Fox Dog Studios, The Umbilical Brothers, uh, Martin Urbano, Lou Wall, Courtney Peruso, Patty Harrison, Ruben Solo, Johnny White, Really Really. I saw Tom Ballard again, he can come back on, I'm sure. Um, Worked with Darren Harriet, saw Sarah Schaefer. Um, Didn't manage to see Chloe Radcliffe, but was gutted about that, so I'm going to try and get hold of a means of seeing that show by by other means. And some incredible people who were in their kind of debut, but but people who I'd love to... um, 
uh, love to to have on the show at a later date. People like Lorna Rose Treen and Crystal Evans and William Stone and Lachlan Werner. And and I've just, like, I'm completely, my cup runneth over, my head runneth over, which is why I can't kind of, I'm sort of just throwing all these names at you of brilliant things I saw. I saw Police Cops, the musical, twice. Every year I think to myself, I can't possibly see Police Cops again because it just uses up sort of two slots worth of seeing other acts. And then I just snap <laughs> and I, I fold and I go and watch Police Cops and they're better than ever. And they're coming to the Southwark Playhouse sometime before, sometime in autumn, I think. So look out for Police Cops, the musical. I'll, I'll shout them out once I know the details. But my God, what a show. Anyway, all of those brilliant people I saw, I will be trying to get a bunch of them on the show if I can. And I just had such a phenomenal time. So thank you. Thank you to you if you came to see the show or inquired about it or shared it or directed other people to it. Thank you to all of my management people at Chambers Management and Storytelling PR who were fantastic. Um, thank you to Tom Heap, whose Sky Climate Show, uh, he was kind enough to have me on. Um, and uh, thank you to the Environment Department, the Environment Desk at the Scotsman, who had a fantastic uh, interview there with someone called Ilona. Um, and all the people who very kindly, positively reviewed the show and all the people who saw it and my wife and my uh, fabulous uh, numerous children, just two of them, but they feel more numerous than just two of them, and all of that. Everyone really, it was great. I did a thanks if you saw the the one group street show that I did. That was a joy. Um, but also, I here's a thing. I wanted to um, I wanted to share with you a thing that my brother said. I probably won't do much more detail than this. It'll just bubble out of me over the next year. But I wanted to share this with you because my brother, who is in his 40s, I mean, it's, I mean, he is in his 40s. I can't remember the exact number. I think 42. Um, he hadn't been to the festival for years. He came up with me like 10 or 15 years ago. Hadn't been there for years. We took him round. We saw some shows. We had a great time. And he said this, and I will leave you with this because I think it is so lovely. He walked around it for a couple of days and he said, oh, I get it. I get it. It's a trying festival. And it is, isn't it? I don't mean that in a sort of weak pun about the festival itself is very trying, but it is a festival about trying. It's not like when you go to Glastonbury and everyone there has been booked or, you know, a music festival. Everyone there is booked and paid for. This is it's a different thing, isn't it? It's uh, the experience is simply you're in a room of a festival full of rooms, full of people who are all trying trying to express themselves, trying to get their audience in, trying to change people's minds and hearts and moods. And everyone is just collectively striving. And I love that. So I've had a wonderful time travelling, hopefully, striving and trying. So thanks to him for pointing that out. Um, and uh, thanks to you. Just for being you. <laughs> um, don't miss uh, Nish's special. Remember, it's called Your Power, Your Control. You can find it on Sky On Demand and Now TV. You can follow uh, me on social media at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy or at ComComPod if you're old school Twitter, which is its name. And, uh, and that's that. Goodbye for now. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>